Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? Weathering the heat? I was thinking about it this morning, driving in. As the, as the heat in Chicago goes up, the bears go down. What, how, does that, how does that work? Kind of an interesting cultural phenomenon. Anyway, I'm glad you guys are here. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to John chapter 4, the New Testament, John 4. And uh, as you know, we're in a series called Collision. It's a series in which we're looking at various people's encounters with Jesus, and uh, these are ones specifically recorded by the Apostle John in his biography of Jesus. And as unique as these encounters are, each of them are, one thing that we're learning uh, that's true of all of them, that those people who had intentional and even unintentional interactions with Jesus, their lives were seriously, seriously impacted, changed forever. If you've missed any of the uh, encounters that we've done so far, you can go online and listen. I think you'll find them helpful. Last week, for example, we saw Jesus spend two days in a Samaritan town called Sikar, which was unprecedented because the Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They didn't hang out to that together. They didn't talk to one another. But Jesus wouldn't allow geographical, racial, gender, uh, religious, cultural, or even moral barriers keep him from interacting with people, no matter who they were, no matter where they lived. And in fact, as a result of his stay in Samaria, many people in the town of Sikar uh, came to faith in him. They said, we know this man really is savior of the world. So I want to pick up where we left off uh, because Jesus leaves Samaria and he heads to Galilee, uh, the area in which he grew up, and he has a fascinating encounter there as well. So uh, let me read for you the, the story here. It begins in John chapter 4, verse 43. After the two days in, in Sychar, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They'd seen all he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and, and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that the boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. So now when most people um, study this account, I think the tendency is to focus attention on the miracle Jesus performs, which makes sense, right? And miracles were a big deal. Uh, they served to demonstrate Jesus' power and divine nature. It wasn't about entertainment. It was about affirming, you know, who he was, God in the flesh. But instead of doing that, instead of uh, focusing on the miracle per se or even on Jesus uh, who does it, I'd like to direct our attention specifically to the man who asks Jesus for help, a dad whose son was on the brink of death. Uh, before we get to him, however, uh, let me address what may appear on the surface to be a contradiction. I don't know if you guys picked up on this or not, uh, but John records that Jesus leaves Samaria and heads to Galilee where he grew up, right? And, and John notes how Jesus said, a prophet has no honor in his own country. In other words, Jesus wasn't expecting the people in Galilee to receive him or honor him uh, as the Samaritans did. And there's some irony in that. You know, if you think about it, while the Samaritans who hated Jews 
readily accepted Jesus as Messiah, his own Jewish people, even those in his home region of Galilee, who you would think would accept him as Messiah, would not. By and large, they would reject him. And Jesus knew that going in. And yet John says, when he arrived in Galilee, the, the Galileans welcomed him. So which is it? How can it be both, rejection and welcome? Well, very simply, many of the Galileans were just in Jerusalem at, at the Passover festival, John says, as was Jesus. And they saw him in the city doing some miraculous things. And so they were quite excited that he was coming home. And they welcomed him, not as the Messiah, not as the Christ, but as a guy who performed some pretty impressive signs and wonders i.e. they were less interested in the person, way more interested in the performance and what amazing things he might do among them. You know, you know what I'm saying? So they welcomed him in that sense. Well, Jesus enters Galilee and he stops in Cana where, he remember, he was once at a wedding and he turns some water into wine. And it's there he encounters this man who's identified by John uh, as a, a royal official. And uh, some translations say nobleman. But the Greek term that's used here is the term basilikos, literally meaning belonging to a king. And, uh, and therefore, scholars agree this man was in some way officially connected to King Herod's royal court, his administration, perhaps even his family. Somehow, some way, he, he really did belong to the king, making him a person of power, wealth, and great influence. But he was also a father, a desperate father, because his son was deathly ill. Bedridden, bedridden with a, uh, a fever uh, in the city of Capernaum, which was located 25 miles uh, down uh, on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. And I say down because the Sea of Galilee is kind of in a, a big valley. Well, somehow this man got news that Jesus was in Cana, and uh, so he travels. He walked quite a good distance to find him, and when he does, John says he begged Jesus to come and heal his son. And Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe which may seem a little, maybe, maybe seem a little harsh, right? But understand, Jesus wasn't directing the comment uh, to this royal official alone. He states it in the plural. He uses the pronoun you in the plural. He's literally saying, you people. You people, in other words, you Galileans. See, this man came to Jesus asking for a mir miracle in, um, in a cultural environment where everyone was obsessed with them. They were looking for them, they were, they were hoping for them, and in some cases, they were demanding them. As I said before, the Galileans were way more interested in seeing the miraculous than encountering the Messiah. But the man goes on, and uh, he asks Jesus again, Sir, please come down uh, before my child dies. To which Jesus says, Go, your son will live. And so the man leaves. He heads back to Capernaum, and uh, before he gets to the city, he's greeted by a few of his servants who report his son was healed and very much alive. Now, as with every one of Jesus' miracles, what he does here reveals truth about his mercy, grace, omniscience, omnipotence, all worthy topics of discussion. However, the encounter also tells us an awful lot about faith. About faith, and that's what I want to explore in the time we have, because as I see it, the, the royal official, this, this de desperate father's experience, offers a rather clear picture of what I would call the anatomy of faith. See, sometimes when I, I hear people talking about spiritual matters, I'll hear someone say something like, well, it doesn't make sense, but I guess that's what, that's what faith is about. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but I guess that's where faith comes in. And I kind of cringe when I hear that, because as far as I'm concerned, that comment is not particularly accurate or helpful. While it's true, there's a limitation to 
our, our finite ability to understand certain things. The comment implies that faith is opposed to reason. They are, they are antithetical. And that's just not true. In fact, I suggest this man who intentionally seeks out Jesus, he demonstrates that when it comes right down to it, uh, faith is rational. It's rational in that it's always born of thinking. Isn't that true? I mean, sure it is. It's true in our everyday lives. Faith always starts with processing information. Um, for example, let's say, let's say you injure your knee pretty badly. You know, there's, there's a lot of swelling, there's bruising, there's severe pain. Uh, uh, you, you realize what happened, that you fell, uh, and your body's telling you there's a problem, so you need to see a doctor. So you start looking for an orthopedist. Uh, you research doctors in the area, you, you, you ask for recommendations, you consider the options, you collect the information, and then you go to a doctor who says surgery is absolutely required. Then what do you do? Well, you may go get a second opinion, right? That might be one thing you do. Or you talk to people who've had the same exact surgery, ask them a lot of questions about it. So what are you doing overall? You're, you're collecting information, you're processing it, you're reasoning, you're evaluating, you are thinking before you put faith in a doctor who's going to do reconstructive surgery on a major body part, right? It's only natural. It's a natural thing to do. Or let's say, uh, let's say a guy notices a girl who, who, you know, who is in his eyes abs absolutely gorgeous, just absolutely gorgeous, and so he says, I'm gonna marry that girl. I'm gonna marry that girl. I don't need to know anything else about her. I don't need to, to learn about her background, her family, her character. I'm not interested in asking people who know her to tell me more about her. I don't even need to spend any time with her learning about her likes and dislikes, etc. I believe she's the woman for me, and I'm going to follow my heart, and I'm going to marry her. Who says that? Right? Who says that? Only a fool would do that. Because trust me when I tell you, it takes faith to marry someone. How does that faith come about? Not through feeling. Not through feeling. It comes through learning learning about the person, evaluating, reasoning, thinking carefully before taking what is a pretty big step of faith. So understand, whatever area of life we're talking, uh, faith is rational. It's born of thinking. And that was certainly true of the, this guy whose son was deathly ill. Why would he travel 25 miles, basically uphill, to find Jesus and ask for help? Why? Because he had information. He knew about Jesus. He, he had heard some good things, amazing things. In some respects, I suppose, controversial things, considering who Jesus was claiming to be, the Messiah and Savior. No doubt he was also in Jerusalem for Passover. Everybody went to Jerusalem for Passover. So he knew uh, of the things that Jesus said there and what he did there. So in short, he takes all the available information he has about Jesus. He, he, he processes it. He evaluates it. He, he considers the claims he thinks about whether or not Jesus could possibly save his child, and then, in what was an initial step of faith, decides to leave his dying son behind and go to Jesus seeking help. Listen, trust me when I tell you this. Study the scriptures for yourself. You will never find God telling people not to think. He never says that. He never says to people, check your brains in at the door. I mean, Jesus, when interacting with people, what would he do? He would ask questions. He would, he would share parables. 
He would use illustrations and metaphors and similes, common, common illustrations uh, from everyday life in his teaching. Why? To get men and women thinking. To get people to engage their brains. Because faith is rational. It's born of thinking. And it's experiential. What do I mean by that? Well, when you finally choose your orthopedist and say, I think this doctor is the one, I think this doctor is great, highly recommended, they'll do the surgery, they'll do it well, they'll fix my knee, I have faith in them. Well, you can say that all you want, you can say that to your blue in the face, but it's not enough, is it? It's not enough, I mean, you actually have to go, place yourself in the doctor's care, do what they say, get on a gurney, let him or her do the surgery, obey their post-op instructions, otherwise there's no healing. There's no healing. If all you do is think the doctor is good and able to help you, but do nothing about it, then you didn't really have faith in them at all. Not really. Here's the point. You cannot have faith without thinking, but you can have thinking that doesn't lead to faith. Do you follow that? You can't have faith without thinking, but you can have thinking that doesn't lead to genuine faith. That's what, that's what James was getting at in the New Testament when he writes a letter to Christians in the early church. And he says, look, faith without works, faith without action, faith without obedience, that's, that's dead. It's dead. It's nothing. It's, not, it's nothing. So make no mistake, true faith isn't just rational. It's not just thinking. It is experiential. It's doing. It's, it impacts behavior. It, it results in action. And this man in our story Think of it, he could have sat in Capernaum at the side of his dying son, processing information about Jesus all day long, thinking and thinking and thinking that, that Jesus could save the child, but it wouldn't have been enough. As hard as it must have been to leave Capernaum, he had to do something, he had to go and ask Jesus to heal the boy. And that's what he does. He goes, he finds Jesus, he says, sir, please, please come with me down to Capernaum before my child dies. And what does Jesus say? He replies, go, your son will live. Actually, I take that back. This is a very poor translation. Why they translate it this way, I do not know. Because literally the text reads, Jesus says, go, your son lives. As in right now, at this moment, currently he is alive. Now what I find particularly interesting here and what I think is sometimes overlooked in this exchange is how Jesus doesn't do exactly what the man asks, right? He doesn't. I mean, John says the guy was begging Jesus to come to Capernaum with him. He said, come down before my child dies. Apparently, the man thought proximity was, was an issue, that Jesus had to be right next to his son in order to heal him. But Jesus refuses to go. He refuses to go, indicating what? First, it indicates, at least to me, that God doesn't necessarily operate according to our human expectations, according to our agendas, our plans, our strategies, our schedules, or timelines. He doesn't. He's not a butler we order around. He's not an Uber driver who needs directions. He's not a delivery person who exists to do our bidding, jumping at our beck and call. He's not. And I realize that may frustrate some people. I get that. But let's be realistic about it. If the God I say I believe in, or if the God you say you believe in, is a deity you think should answer to you, always doing exactly what you want, when you want it, the way you want it, that's a God of your imagination. 
That's a God of your making. In many respects, it makes you God. Do you know what I'm saying? Listen, if there is a divine creator who spoke this universe into being with a simple word, then that God has the sovereign right to do as he pleases in the manner and timing he deems best for us, the creatures he loves. And Jesus didn't have to rush off to Capernaum to heal the boy. He could do it with a simple word. But uh, this guy didn't quite get that. And so Jesus' refusal to go seems to indicate something else. It indicates, at least as I see it, that he was looking for something in the man. What was it? Keep in mind, Jesus had come to Galilee claiming to be deity in the flesh, the Messiah, Savior of the world. And again, what did he say to the, to the Galileans? He said, you, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe me. So could it be that Jesus was looking for this man to demonstrate and express the kind of faith that didn't have to see a miracle to believe? I think that's exactly what he was looking for. Genuine faith. He looks for it in all of us. So let me offer my Ray K version of the conversation. It goes something like this. Man, man finds Jesus and says, Jesus, please come heal my son. Jesus says, are you one of the seeing is believing type people or do you have real faith? The man says, sir, I just know my boy is dying and I think, faith is always born of thinking, I think you can help me if you come with me. And Jesus says, I won't come. I don't have to. I can heal your child from here. Do you believe me? Go, your son lives. And at that moment, the man's faith moved from just being rational, just thinking, to truly experiential, right? Acting, doing, obeying, because faith is both and. How do we know? Well, we're told the man took Jesus at his word and he departed, i.e. he believed what Jesus said and he headed home. Now, that is not to say this father wasn't still worried about his son. I think to suggest that would be unrealistic. I think to say he didn't have any questions or doubts or remaining fears probably wasn't true. I'm sure he did. He's just as human as we are. At some point along the way, maybe he had second thoughts. Maybe he was saying to himself, you know, look, man, if I just had pressed Jesus a little more, if I, if I begged a little harder, maybe, maybe he would have come with me. But questions fears, even doubts along the way in life don't necessarily negate the legitimacy of one's faith. It doesn't. So the fact is, despite any anxiety, any fears he may have had, any confusion, the man believed what Jesus said. He trusted him. How do we know? Because he did what he was told. He did what he was told. He departed for home. Before he got there, some of the servants meet him. They give him the good news. They say, his boy was living. They tell him his boy was living, presently living. And when he asked when his son got better, they said yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, and the man realized right then that, it, that that was the exact time Jesus your son is living. Same language, same words. Can you imagine the joy in that father's heart? I mean, Jesus graciously healed his child. It was a wonderful, wonderful thing. It was the best case scenario. But I gotta tell you something. You know, when I came to this point in the story, there's a part of me that thought, if I'm being brutally honest about it, there's a thought of me, part of me that thought, well, that was wonderful for them. 
That was great for that father and that son, that family. How wonderful for them. But things in life don't always work out in best-case scenarios, do they? Not always. I mean, even this man and his son would eventually face other challenges, disappointment, sickness, suffering, in some form or another, because that's life in a broken world. And they weren't going to be immune from those things moving forward. Which brings me to a more uncomfortable aspect of the anatomy of faith, namely that faith uh, is affirmed in suffering, one way or another. I mean, tell me, what would possess a royal official, a man of great wealth, power, and influence, travel 25 miles on foot to interact with a simple wandering carpenter who he had only heard of. What moved him toward Jesus? What got him thinking about Jesus in the first place? Suffering. Suffering did it. Now listen, I'm no more, I'm no more thrilled about this than you are, but let's face it, when life is going well, we as human beings tend not to concern ourselves with spiritual matters. God, life, death, what, all, what it all means, whatever. We don't concern ourselves with it. Am I wrong on that? When things are going really good with money, with career, with school, with home, with family, when things are good, we feel very self-reliant, very self-sufficient, in control, and secure. But that is all an illusion, my friends. It's just an illusion. Our lives are extremely fragile. And sadly, more often than not, some degree of pain is required to wake us up to that reality. And while it's hard to think clearly in the midst of suffering, there's no denying it. Suffering does make us think. Think of things that matter. And I know that some, there are some people in this room who have suffered a great deal. And if you haven't, you will. As hard as it is to accept the fact is suffering plunges us beneath the routine business of life where we find out if we really are who we say we are and if we believe what we say we believe. I mean, I know people who have experienced some very hard, tragic things in life and in the midst of their suffering, they've thought about it and in anger they deny any faith in God whatsoever. Do away with God. In bitterness they curse him because they feel unfairly treated which in some ways I understand, but um, it would only be truly unfair if suffering came upon a select few. But it comes to all of us at some point or another. No one is immune. This royal official whose son was near death, he could have easily gone the other way, very easily. He could have turned away from God, cursed God, just railed against God for allowing his son to suffer. But instead he thinks about it and he chooses to move in Jesus' direction. And that's the weird thing about suffering. Just as it may push some people away from faith in God, it draws others to faith and affirms their belief in him. And that's what it did for this man. When he left his son and headed for Jesus, it, it was the first inkling of genuine faith. Granted, it was simple faith. It was basic in the sense that he didn't know all that much about Jesus, but he knew enough to believe Jesus could help his son. And yet, let's review how the story ends, because when the father realizes his boy was healed, at the very moment Jesus said, your son is living, what happens? John says, the man believes. He and his household believes. And you may say, well, hold on a second, man. I thought we just established the guy demonstrated faith already prior to this. He did. 
He thought Jesus could help him, so he went to him. He believed what Jesus said, so he obeyed him. But now he believes in who Jesus was, who he claimed to be, God in the flesh, the Messiah, the Savior, Savior not just of his son, but of the world. And that's the one final thing about faith. Faith is a journey, it's not a destination. You think about it, this, this man goes from gathering information about Jesus to being a nominal believer to then having full-blown faith in him as Savior. And given that his whole household believed as well, implies that he sat everybody down and he shared with them the story of his encounter with Jesus, with the Messiah, what Jesus said to him, what he graciously did for him. Now, where does this man's faith journey take him next from here? We don't know because we don't hear of him or his son again. But there's no doubt about it. I mean, their lives were changed forever, seriously impacted. And so I'm glad John records the guy's story because it, it helps me, and I think it helps all of us better understand this thing called faith, especially as it relates to Jesus, how true faith in him is both rational and experiential. It's both thinking and it's doing. And how in times of suffering, pain, and weakness, our faith gets tested and affirms one way or another what we really think, what we really believe. The story also reveals how genuine faith in Jesus will progressively change our lives, progressively transform us. Is it transforming yours? Has it changed your life at all? And where are you on this faith journey? Are you heading toward Jesus or away from him? Let's pray. Our Father, it's, it's so easy for us to throw words around in a rather cavalier fashion, not thinking about what they really mean. Talk about faith a lot in church contexts. For some, faith is just information. Uh, for others, faith might be something else. But I, I pray this morning you would help us grasp the reality that faith is both rational and experiential. It's thinking, it's reasoning, and then it's, it's acting. It's acting on what we think. It's acting on what Jesus says. It's believing what God has told us is right and good and true and, and, and worth doing. It's both and. And in the moments of suffering, in the moments of trial and confusion, frustration, challenges, whether they're at work, at home, at school, in our careers, um, what we say we believe gets, gets tested. Suffering has a, a way of drawing us closer to you or pushes, pushing us away. And yet, where, where shall we go? Father, where shall we go? <laughs> what else in this world can offer us the hope and security and life that you alone offer us? There's nothing we can go to. There's no one we can go to except for, to you, our God. And so this morning, may we take a moment to just examine our own faith journey. Where are we in this process? And is, uh, is our lives, are our lives being pulled toward you and toward Jesus? I, I pray that that would be true, that each of us are moving closer to him and experiencing the transformation that comes with that. 
I pray that we would always trust you in whatever circumstances of life, even when our faith is shaken, may, may we know that you love us no matter what. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, shall we? I want to thank you guys for being with us this morning. And, um, you know, looking at all these encounters over the last few weeks, uh, one thing I'm learning is there's, there's so much depth to what happens when people come in contact with Jesus. You know, we don't even have time to, you know, kind of peel back all the layers. Even, even with this story this morning, we didn't talk about the fact that Jesus does this asking for nothing in return. He graciously does this. He doesn't ask the guy for money. He doesn't ask him to do this, that, or the other thing. He just graciously offers this gift of life to his son. Also, in the context of that is the message of the gospel, right? This man gets his son, but in the gospel, God loses his son. Jesus gives his life that we might have it. He doesn't ask us for anything in return except belief, believe, and receive. That's Christianity. And unfortunately, so many people have different opinions of what it means. And they have these very religious ideas, and the religious ideas are just beating them down, wearing them out, because they fail to recognize the core of the gospel is grace. Grace. If you want to talk to someone more about that, because you're still wrestling with it, talk to, um, you know, talk to someone you know from Parkview. Let them share their faith story with you. Or following the service, some of our prayer team folks will be up front. You can come and talk with them, and they'll pray with you as well. Okay. But... Um, Hoping back come next week, we're gonna we're gonna look at another encounter Jesus has with a lot of people. It's a pretty well known one, but there's some I think there's some things in there that we often overlook. So we're gonna take a look at that. All right. Hope you're finding these helpful. I know I'm learning a lot, so uh, I'm gonna keep doing that anyway. Right? Okay. So you, you can come along or whatever. But uh, 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 yeah. So I'll see you next week. Let me pray for us, and then uh, then life kind of gets started again, right? We head back out in the world. So. Uh, Let's ask God to give us strength to live our lives for him. Our Father, we, uh, we're grateful for the, the time we've had here together. We acknowledge your presence with us through ups and downs, good and bad. You never leave us, even when we fail to recognize your presence, you're with us. And now we leave this, the comfort of this space and we head back out into a world that it's so beautiful at times and yet so tragically broken at others. Um, so I pray whatever life brings our way this week that we would, we would place our faith and hope in you alone. And as we live lives of faith, um, we would have the opportunity to point people to Jesus. May your hand of grace and strength now rest on your church. In his name we pray, amen. Thanks for being here, folks. We'll see you next week.